0: Alright, so welcome to a sunny TLS, nice that it's not snowing, Uh, and it's a lovely warm morning, and uh, we are going to discuss quite a serious subject today, Um, but hopefully, yeah, it's literally a hot topic, thank you for (laughs) that one, Stevie, I should really have thought of that one beforehand, shouldn't I? But uh, because we've got a lot to cover, I'm going to just kick off straight away without too many preliminaries. So I'm starting with uh, one of my favourite authors, a good old Tom Wright again. Um, Funnily enough, I don't actually agree with Tom Wright's view on hell in every aspect, but um, his quote here is, is very relevant. It says, Almost nobody in the Gospels warns about going to hell. Quotes. The dire warnings in the four Gospels are mostly directed toward an imminent this-worldly disaster, namely the fall of Jerusalem and other events connected with that. There are occasional sayings that go beyond that, but this dimension seems to be taken for granted rather than made central. So that was a little sort of a moderating quote really to say this is actually not central to the Gospel message. Um, And that's, you know, considering how many gospel presentations are given where it's absolutely central and upfront and, uh, you know, it's like two destinations, you know, one eternity, which one do you choose, you know, (laughs) Um, that isn't how it is in the Bible. So um, it's not mentioned at all in the Old Testament. Now, it's alluded to perhaps in a few places, but, you know, it's really not mentioned specifically. it only occurs very sparingly in the new um, the early Christians when they preached in the book of acts they they really didn't mention it at all you know they they talked about judgment occasionally, but they certainly didn't um, you know use warnings of hell to kind of persuade people to accept jesus they they just didn't do that um, The gospel for them was much more an announcement of the kingdom you know and and they got so. Um, they were, you know, they were just talking about the resurrection and, and so on. So it's about the new creation breaking in, about God's plan to redeem the world and heal creation, and they just didn't use hell in that way. Um, however, um, hell is a reality that's talked about in the New Testament, so we have to take it seriously and think about what does it actually mean. Um, there's a man with symbols. No. Really. <laughs> um, so we have to take it seriously, but we have to be guided by Scripture rather than by emotion. Because in this, this topic, that, you know, people can get very emotional on, on both sides, you know. You can have some people that say, how can you possibly say that there isn't a terrible punishment for those who have done terrible things in this life? And get very emotional about justice and justice being done on the other hand you can get people being very emotional about how can a loving God do something so horrendous as what you're describing you know Um, and obviously it's a serious thing and therefore it does arouse emotion but we have to be guided by by scripture. So um, when we covered eternity last time we we saw that there are quite a few distorted views out there you know with people you know popular misconceptions Um, you know, people's views being shaped more by the popular culture or by you know, inaccurate Bible knowledge or whatever, and it's the same with this subject. So let's clear away a bit of rubble and uh, deal with a few misconceptions. So misconception number one, um, th- these are not in order of priority, these are just in the order of the, the way I thought of them. So anyway, so number one, hell is Satan's lair. Now this is the sort of misconception where people assume that hell is like Satan's base of operations from which he emerges from time to time right. to attack people, and that that's his kind of home, he's at home there, it's his den, you know, and he comes out from there and attacks everyone, and I, you know, think of phrases like the hordes of hell, you know. Um, One of my absolute favourite songs is Build Your Kingdom Here by Rend Collective and I love it and I love the theology about the Kingdom of God, about restoration. There's just one line in it where you think, no, (laughs) but you know what they mean and it's sort of, no force of hell can stop his beauty changing hearts. Now, I agree that no demonic force can stop the beauty of Christ changing hearts, but they're not the forces of hell. Hell's the one place they don't want to go. You know, it's not their base of operations. It's their final end. It's their doom. So, you know, it's not that they are the forces of hell. You know, so it's a subtle thing, maybe. But there is this assumption that that hell is kind of their domain. It's where they, you know, it's not. It's really where they don't want to be. So, second misconception. Uh, People in hell will be tormented by demons. Now this, I think a lot of this comes from films and books that kind of imagine that people will be sent to hell and then the demons will torment them you know um you know maybe even the demons acting on god's behalf in some way you know it's just simply not the case because um the bible presents hell as a place where evil is condemned you know where it's dealt with and 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 got rid of so the demons are not the custodians of it they're not the jailers they're the victims you know um People sometimes think about the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18, um, which talks about people being tormented by the jailers until they pay back all they owe, you know, the one that owed a lot of money. But really, firstly, it's a parable. So, you know, it's it's not meant to be taken literally, but it's got one broad message, and that message is forgiveness. And that's what it's about, really. It's about the forgiveness. And I I see that parable as not being a reference to some kind of future hell where people are tormented by jailers, Mm. but it's the prison that people make for themselves Mm. in the present, that they are tormented, they are imprisoned and locked up through unforgiveness in the here and now, and I think that's what Jesus is really talking about. So we're not going to be, nobody's going to be tormented by demons. Misconception number three. Jesus spoke an awful lot about hell. (laughs) (laughs) Well actually he didn't. (laughs) It's simply not true. A lot of the sayings um, as we said earlier with that quote from Tom Wright a lot of these sayings that are traditionally associated with hell are actually about Israel coming under judgment because of their refusal to accept uh, Jesus as God's Messiah and obviously some of them did a lot of them did Paul, Peter, you know a lot of them did but as a nation and the leadership didn't uh, believe in Jesus. And so you've got things like um, Luke 13, the first few verses, where the t- Jesus talks about the fig tree and the fact that the fig tree is going to be uh, <coughs> dug up and thrown away, sort of thing. And, and the fig tree is representative of Israel. And mm. really, it's a case of you know, you guys, if you keep going down this path, mm of not accepting the kind of messiah that we actually have if you continue to persist down the idea of a political and military messiah who's going to overthrow the romans mm-hmm. that thinking and that attitude is going to land you in trouble with the romans and they're going to come and they're going to destroy your nation and that's exa- exactly what happened in ad 70 so some of the the um, the sayings of jesus that are traditionally thought of as being about hell are actually about that kind of thing um, Jesus really spoke more about things like money than about heaven and hell. (laughs) Um, And his followers didn't preach fire and brimstone either. They were more excited about the resurrection and the arrival of God's reign in Christ and the outpoured Holy Spirit. So they spoke so much about Jesus and the resurrection that some of the Greeks thought that they were talking about two gods, one called Jesus and one called resurrection. (laughs) It's true, um, that's what they thought. Um, That's what they concentrated on. So, misconception number four, some people are in hell now. Now, an assumption is often made that if somebody dies without accepting Christ in this life, then they're some suddenly transported off to hell. And, again, that is not what the Bible says. The Bible presents hell as, some, as some, the second death. So, Revelation 21, verse 8. And without going into any assumptions about who goes there or how many or whatever, it it presents it as something that happens after the resurrection and after the final judgment. So whatever hell is, it's a future event, not a present state. You know, it's not something that, you know, that the people are in now. And again, people often say, well, what about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? Mm. Um, Where there's, you know, Jesus is telling the story, they both die. Lazarus goes to Abraham's side, and and the rich man goes to quotes hell. He doesn't go to hell. Mm-hmm. He goes to somewhere called Hades, mm-hmm. um, which is incorrectly translated in older versions of the Bible. They get it m- right more often than not now. Um, so that yeah, the rich man and Lazarus was Luke 16, verses 19 to 31. But but the two concepts are different. And a f- To understand that, we need to get into the language a little bit. So let's have a look at some important words. So the translators of the King James Bible have got a lot to answer for. (laughs) They did the best they had with the knowledge they had and the manuscripts they had. But they translated the Hebrew Sheol uh, in the Old Testament and the Greek Hades in the New Testament as hell. And because of that, hell, if you read the King James Version, it comes up quite a lot in the Old Testament and more often than it actually does in the New. And so it increases the emphasis on it. And then you've got things like Dante's Inferno that we mentioned before we started um, and other kind of Middle Ages type thinking carrying through right to the present. It colours people's beliefs about what, what hell actually is. Um, Even if you think about the Apostles' Creed, uh, if you're familiar with that, it's not the Apostles who wrote it, but it's an early Christian creed, and it talks about Christ descending into hell. But the word they used when they wrote that creed was not hell, it was Hades. Um, Now, the words Sheol in the Old Testament and Hades in the New are roughly the same thing, and it means the abode of the dead, or it means the grave, or... Death more generally, and the Old Testament doesn't have very much on resurrection. There's only a couple of verses really on resurrection in the Old Testament, but they assumed that people who died went off to the grave. They just you know they shuffled off this mortal coil and went to Sheol. And sometimes there was a sort of vague assumption that the outcomes for them might be more favourable if they were godly people than if they weren't. But you know there wasn't much there really about it. by the time we come to the New Testament and, and the time of Jesus, then the thinking had developed to where you get this the grave, Hades almost has two compartments, one for the covenant people, one for the righteous ones who go with who go to be with Abraham, Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom as it used to be translated, uh, also known as Paradise. Um, and the unrighteous went to Hades, you know, which was then more the negative side of it, and that's what Jesus is talking about in the rich man and Lazarus parable so Jesus isn't presenting anything new there, he's just using common belief at the time and illustrating a point with it Um, but the important thing about both paradise and Hades was that they were both temporary they were temporary states whilst people awaited the coming age and they awaited the, the resurrection and the final judgment you know, when, when Israel would be justified as God's people, you know, and, and so on. And we know from, you know, what we said in the, when, when I talked about justification and righteousness, that that's now been redefined, you know, so that Israel is now all those who um, respond to Christ in faith. But those in paradise uh, enjoyed God's presence, um, whilst those in Hades were in torment somehow. But Hades wasn't hell. Um, the word that's used for the final place of punishment slash justice slash whatever, which was to follow this final judgment, was Gehenna. Mm. Um, And that was named after the valley of Ben-Hinnom, so Henna-Hinnom, where in the Old Testament, kings who were idolatrous kings had sacrificed their children to idols and uh, awful, terrible things had happened. And so you get a lot of Old Testament passages which speak of God's judgment on the Valley of Ben Hinnom, and it was going to be a place of burning and a place of slaughter, and you know, and no longer would people sacrifice their children to Molech there. Um, and so it became a figure for God's total judgment on the, on the unrighteous. Um, just talking about Gehenna, Ben Valley of Ben Hinnom, and. Um, and then, it, so it became a, a figure for the the final judgment in the future and what would happen after that. So, if you separate the ideas of Hades and Sheol from Gehenna, uh, it certainly it reduces the biblical emphasis on hell or the apparent b- biblical emphasis, and it allows you to re-examine some of the the scriptures. So, Gehenna itself is only mentioned about twelve times in the whole Bible, although you do get references to the lake of fire and the second death in Revelation which could be taken to refer to the same thing. Uh, There is one reference um, in 2 Peter 2 uh, which is sometimes translated as hell and that's to Tartarus which is a sort of Greek um, idea but in the context that's actually a place where it says that the the rebellious angels are held awaiting judgment so it could be their version of Hades if you like you know the, where the the demonic forces or the evil forces of evil are held so it's not again it's not a reference to to hell actually so um, let's get on to what the three main views are there's a fourth view which is purgatory um, which some people even today Believe that that everybody that dies, just even Christians, go off to a place where they can be further purified before they're ready for heaven. Mm-hmm. I don't really go for that myself, and I don't think many people so it's do. Like an Egyptian um, view actually of the afterlife. Egyptian view. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Yeah, the yeah. The peace. yeah, yeah. It's yeah, it's exactly more that time, it's, it's the belief of right. It's more common in Catholic circles, yeah, but some other you know Protestant Christians have also proposed that because your renewing of your mind doesn't fully complete necessarily at the moment you die. Maybe you need to be better renewed to kind of get there. But to be honest, my view is that, you know, once you're kind of in that place, your renewing of your mind probably happens pretty quickly. <laughs> you <know? laughs> and you've, you've, you no longer have your earthly body at that point. Uh, and so all the, you know, all the temptations and needs and everything else that comes from your physical body are no longer there. So my view is that once you're in the presence of Jesus, you know you you kind of pretty quickly get your thinking straight, you know. So I, I don't really, <laughs> I don't really go for the idea of purgatory. So, so neglecting that one, there are three main views. One is called well, well, well just naming them quickly: the traditional view, then there's the conditional view, and then there's the universal view. And I'll go through them both, uh, them, all of them quite quickly. So. The traditional view, and we will discuss this more, particularly in the second half, um, is eternal conscious torment, which is slightly chillingly abbreviated ECT. Makes it sound like a medical procedure, but actually, you know, you don't want to dwell on the concept too long because it's just so horrendous. Um, But in that view, those who have finally rejected Christ are consigned to suffer forever in a consciously aware state And so they're punished infinitely, with no possibility of an end to their torment. Um, Now that belief rests very heavily on the assumption that the human soul is immortal. Um, Although, as I've said here in brackets, even the traditionalists who go for this, they even have to admit that the Bible nowhere actually says that the the human soul is immortal. It's sort of assumed. And to be honest, I suspect that people that believe this view don't really believe it, because if they did, they'd be rushing around the streets, grabbing everybody they could find and and telling them, believe in Jesus, you know, Mm. (laughs) maybe maybe some do, but um, but anyway, leaving that to one side for the moment, that is the the dominant view amongst Christians, a lot of Christians anyway, in the evangelical world. Mm. Um, The second view, the conditional view, sometimes called conditional immortality, That one states that immortality belongs to God alone and that He confers immortality on those who turn to Christ. So I've got a few scriptures there 1 Timothy 6, 15 to 16, 1 Timothy 1, verse 16, and Romans 2, verse 7. And it's basically things like, you know, God who alone is immortal uh, and, you know, those who are, you know, so it talks about Him giving eternal life. Um, On the other side of that argument, I said last time that eternal life was more about the life of the age to come rather than an emphasis on living forever, although I do believe it entails living forever so that other people come back with different arguments, but those scriptures suggest that God confers immortality on us, that we're not innately immortal. Um, Now, people who believe in conditional immortality believe, and, and this is biblical actually, people, whether they're believers or not, are, they're resurrected at the end of the age to undergo final judgment. So what they then go on to say is that those who are not in Christ are consigned to the second death, which is this lake of fire, this Gehenna, whatever it is, and undergo a period of suffering, um, the severity of which could vary depending on their deeds, Um, but eventually it results in them being consumed and ceasing to exist at all. So that's uh, also known as annihilation. Now this is different to what, say, the Jehovah's Witnesses believe, because the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that if you die outside of Christ, you just wink out of existence immediately. And that is where some people who are anti this view don't like it because they see where's the justice in that, you can live however you like and you just don't know anything about it, you just go and that's it, nobody, nobody says anything, nobody does anything, you've just gone um, and I think that's where the guy, you know, Mr G that we were talking about earlier, that's where he's you know saying no that, that can't be right, but that's not what this is, this this is there is a judgment, there is um, a sort of final reckoning where the truth is revealed to people as to what their life has meant, as to what you know the truth of Jesus, um, and in this view, people um, actually do have a, a, a time, a place, and a time to, to sort of suffer the consequences of that, but it eventually results in them ceasing to exist. So that's that one. Then there's the universal view, or just universalism, which is generally a bit of a minority view in evangelical circles, but by no means uncommon. Um, in this view, whilst those who have rejected Christ in their lifetime might undergo suffering, um, the suffering kind of acts in a purging way, a corrective way, so it's uh, restorative rather than retributive justice. But the the suffering is not to pay for sin, but it's a sort of discipline into rethinking um, their life. And I mean... Whichever of these views that, that you go for, m- as I've said quite a few times over these sessions, I don't believe this is God actively punishing people. This is people's, the consequences of their lives catching up with them, um, and God allowing that to happen in some way. But it's more a natural outcome of their, their separation from God, their voluntary separation from God. That causes it. So, so when I, if I do talk about punishment at any time, I'm not really thinking of God the Punisher. I'm thinking of it's it's really just the natural consequences of their their sin coming on them. So this this suffering, if you, if you have a universalist view, it's not to pay for sin, but it's to restore you to God. Um, again. Um, some people who take the traditional view would say, well, that you know, that just means you're a woolly liberal that um, believes that you can do what you like and believe anything and you'll just be welcomed in with open arms. But if you're an evangelical and you believe this, then you believe that only faith in Christ and only true repentance can actually allow you to, to be restored in that way. So in this view, hell would either remain empty, except perhaps for the devil and his demons, you know, maybe they get thrown in Maybe, but maybe others don't. Or uh, it would be emptied over time as people were saved. Um, and, and they sometimes quote this idea of, you know, that th- th- you have this heavenly city, uh, and it says, on no day will its gates ever be shut. And so, you know, there's an opportunity for people to come in ongoing. Now, I, I, would, I wouldn't use that scripture that way, because to me that's a scripture about a present reality, in this age, about the church, about about God, about God's people, and about you know the gates being open um, now, not some kind of future state. So I wouldn't go for that, but that's you know that's what some people go for. So we're going to have a quick break. Um, it'll have to be a fairly quick break because we're, we're going to get into some interesting stuff afterwards. But I've just got this little diagram. It's quite a complex diagram actually, called the Hell Triangle. <laughs> so, If you want to look at it bigger and you want to get more information about this, it's on rethinkinghell.com and it shows the relationship between these three views and their differences. So you've got Universalism, Traditionalism, Conditionalism. So where there's a line joining the two, that means there's something in common. So for example, on the right hand side there, Universalism and Conditionalism are common in that they believe that suffering ends and evil is eradicated. Mm Whereas the traditional view, evil, kind of continues, but but contained, you know. So, and if you look at the line between traditionalism and universalism, they both believe in universal immortality, whereas on the other apex of the triangle, that's conditional immortality, so they don't believe that you're innately immortal. Traditionalism to conditionalism, they believe in a final judgment and an eternal punishment. Um, and so on. So there's lots of other things, and then in the middle there, it's what happens to evil. Uh, and there's some little arrows that, if you believe in that particular bit of um, the doctrine, it moves you further along one line than the other. So, for example, dehumanisation coming out of traditionalism—that's Tom Wright's view. So he believes, or he he, did, he proposed, you know, he tentatively proposed a compromise between eternal conscious torment and annihilation, which is that people who go to hell cease to be human, and so they, they get less and less and less human. So they were once human, but they're no, no <coughs> I don't really go for that, to be honest. But anyway, um, in the discussion time, let's think about the, these three views. Which do you feel has the most and the least biblical support, and why? Okay. So the question I asked before the break was, which view has the most biblical support? Now, obviously, I didn't give you a concordance and time to go and, uh, and check all the references. Um, and, of course, I'm going to give you what I think, um, which I always do. In you know, Surprising to the traditionalists, I believe that the, the view that has the absolute least, in fact, minimal support is the traditional view, mm. eternal conscious torment. There are really only about two verses that hint at it, or you know, people use as sort of proof texts for it. There are some others, but they're all easily explainable. Um, the one that, to me, seems to have the most biblical support, or the most scriptures that go towards it, is the conditional view, where evil, and again, I'm not making any statement about how many people that entails, but where evil is is destroyed. And hell, as in the lake of fire, the second death, as a place of consuming and getting rid of. That, is, to me, is the one that is, is all over the Bible. Having said that, universalism has got quite strong biblical support as well. Uh, and I've got some scriptures later that, that, uh, that will, s- will show that. But really, I think it is time that uh, we rethought. Uh, and I've got a little picture here of John Stott. This is from RethinkingHell.com which goes through, it's a terrible, it's a great, great name for a website. But they've had conferences and all sorts. But it's trying to get people away from this traditional eternal conscious torment view. And they very much promote conditional immortality. But John Stott caused a bit of a stir um, when he admitted that his view was changing from the traditional view towards uh, the conditional view. Uh, you know, and there's a little quote on here, you know, we need frank dialogue amongst evangelicals. Mm-hmm. Um, But there's a rising number of of evangelicals that that are are joining him in that. that. So let's look at a few of the problems with the traditional view, because this is the the majority view. Um, But we need to, to look at the scripture to say, you know, what is the problem with this? And a lot of people, obviously, as I said before, the emotion of it, we find the concept of this ECT absolutely horrific. But we can't let emotion determine our beliefs. We've got to get back to the Bible. But what does the Bible reveal about God through Christ? You know, what kind of God is he? Is, he the God, is the God that's revealed there likely to want to punish people without end? You know, kind of keeping people alive so that they can carry on being tormented. You know, it doesn't seem right somehow. That in itself isn't the clincher. Um, but there are some philosophical arguments, like, you know, does an infinite punishment fit the crime? If the crime, you know, if, if somebody has sinned in a finite lifespan, they're a finite human being and their consequences that only have a finite impact, why is there ne- any need for an infinite punishment? Now, this actually idea of an infinite punishment is a Middle Ages thing, because in the Middle Ages, and Anselm of Canterbury kind of argued all this out, If you killed a peasant, it was fairly bad, but not too bad. If you killed the squire, it was much worse. If you killed the king, it was an unimaginable uh, crime that you'd committed. So the the severity of the crime depended on who it was. So Anselm argued that if you sin against God, who is perfect and above all, then you've committed an infinite offence, and therefore you need punishing infinitely. But that's... The nature of mortal and... uh, Zenial sin comes from. Right, okay, yeah, our, our resident former Catholic knows these things. The um, foundation of all that is completely flawed. Its foundation is that it's worse depending on who you did it to. Which is completely flawed. Which is totally flawed now. We don't think of the severity of punishment as depending on the importance of the victim, but just on the action itself, don't we now? Uh, similarly, um, eternal conscious torment It suggests a one size fits all punishment. Whereas the Bible talks in many places about judgment according to deeds, and Jesus hinted, actually, that there could be maybe different grades of punishment, you know, Luke 12, 46 to 48, you know, people being beaten with few or many blows. And again, it's a parable, but it maybe hints at... He's talking about his return, um, and maybe he's hinting at, at this, maybe different, type, different sorts of punishment. Again, when I say punishment, it's more to do with if you depending on what you've done, the consequences are going to be greater for you, or, or less. But if we have a view that involves the restoration of all things, as we were saying in the break, if you've got restoration in your DNA, which we do here, uh, Acts 3.21, all of creation will be restored. And it doesn't make sense that there'd be this corner of the universe where evil and rebellion against God are continuing forever. Surely, you know, you've got to eradicate evil somehow in this new heavens and the new earth. So if you've got a a restoration view of the scriptures, it doesn't make sense. Now, hard as it may be for the traditionalists to accept, if it wasn't for two scriptures in Revelation, uh, highly symbolic scriptures, it's very likely that the whole concept of ECT would never have arisen. Um, it wouldn't have, have been there because the huge weight of biblical passages talk about evil being totally destroyed. So Psalm 37, is just like almost every verse you know, it's going to be done away with. Um, every single scripture of relevance is covered on that website uh, that I mentioned, rethinkinghell.com. They are heavily into CI, conditional immortality, rather than ECT, but they cover all the the relevant scriptures showing how they fit in. Um, their hero is a guy called Edward Fudge um, don't hold the name against him, it isn't a fudge really, but he, t- he wrote a book called The Fire That Consumes um, and that's considered to be the definitive work on on this. But a lot of people are in are in this camp, So, as in the conditional immortality camp, so John Stott, R.T. France, Michael Green, Roger Forster, John Wenham, you know there's quite a few writers and and leaders in this view, uh, in this who have this opinion. And, and the Evangelical Alliance allows it as a, a valid expression of evangelicalism, you know, a valid opinion. Um, so here's where I start to say what my personal view is. Um, obviously, everybody's personal view is open to change, but I will, I will tell you what I think. Um, when the Bible speaks of eternal punishment or eternal fire... And the references are there in your notes. Matthew 25, Jude 7. I believe it's referring to a punishment or a fire with eternal effects, not eternal duration. Because people say, well, it's eternal punishment. It goes on and on and on forever. But I think, really, it's more sensible to say that it's, it's something that happens, but it's got a finite duration, but it has eternal consequences. And in passage after passage, and even John 3.16, you know, I've come that they may have life, that they may not perish. Yeah. You know, it's, it's about evil perishing, not about kind of being tamed and continuing. The effect is to consume or destroy or kill evil, not to maintain it. And as I said uh, in the break, you know, the idea of the immortality of the soul, um, on which ECT depends, is more really a Greek concept of this immortal spark coming from eternity and coming into the physical world and then going out again. It's, it's um, it's more to do with that than on on Scripture. So let's hit some of these these Scriptures that people quote then. So Revelation 14 verses 9 to 11, and this is where it talks about um, the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. Now actually, like a lot of Scriptures in Revelation, it draws from the Old Testament. So this one is drawing from Isaiah 34 verses 8 to 10. Uh, which you can look at later, but it 's talking about um, what 's going to happen to the to the nation of Edom, and it talks about smoke rising from the desolate cities, and it says that the smoke will rise forever Now we know that you know, that didn 't happen it was a judgment that happened to Edom in the past, it was future for them, but it 's past for us, but it 's a poetic way of saying their their rebellion and their subsequent destruction will be remembered. Forever, so there's no life remaining. It's just a memorial, almost, of God's judgment on evil. So when it says the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever, it doesn't mean their torment lasts forever and ever. It just means the smoke of of the destruction and and the fact that God dealt decisively with evil. The memory of that is there. Um, Jesus talking about the um, you know he says. In Mark nine verse forty-eight, and it's the scripture about their worm not dying and the fire not being quenched, and so on. it was that kind of scripture. Actually, that, after all I've said about the gospel not being about hell, it was one of the things that really made me think about about Christ. You know, gosh, this is serious. You know, um, before I was a Christian, yeah. Um, but it actually is a reference to Isaiah sixty-six, the very last chapter of Isaiah, uh, verse twenty-four, and it it talks about the slain or the dead, the evil people who are dead, and how their worm will not die and the fire will not be quenched. And people who believe in ECT often say, well, that means that they they survive in some state forever and ever and ever. But the reference in Isaiah that it's drawing from is to dead bodies. You know, there's no life left and it's a fire that totally consumes or uh, the worms totally consume and they don't stop until the corpses are devoured. So the, the fire doesn't go out. It, it completes its job until there's no more fuel left. And similarly for the worms. So it's it's not a reference to ongoing to, uh, torment or ongoing evil. It's, it's a judgment that completely consumes. Um, there's another one in Daniel 12 uh, that I've not got here in the notes, but it talks about the resurrection and about how some will arise to... Uh, to life and some will arise to everlasting contempt or everlasting shame and so people use that to say well that means that they'll be they'll be there to be ashamed you know but if you um, talk about somebody like say Adolf Hitler you know there's a a shame associated with that name I mean he's dead he's not alive anymore but it's still a shameful name you know that name is held up in, in, in shame really in contempt And so there is an everlasting contempt, in a sense, about that name, but he's not around anymore, you know, so it doesn't mean that they're around. So, a quote here from Jesus, good person to quote, Matthew 10, verse 28, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell, and that is Gehenna. So, Jesus is saying that there is at least the potential for destruction, that the purpose of hell is to destroy not to torment forever and ever and ever so let's let's go for the jugular then so Revelation 20 uh, verses 10 to 15 this is about where you've got the lake of fire you've got, it's called the second death and the devil is thrown in to the lake of fire and death and Hades and so on and it says they will be tormented day and night forever and ever and then later in the passage it says if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life they were thrown into the lake of fire and people say aha you know got ya because you know they assume that the same thing happens to the devil as to people and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever now the first thing we've got to realize is that this is in a really really symbolic part of the bible you know there are multi-headed beasts ridden by gaudy prostitutes with tattoos on their foreheads. You know, this is not to be taken literally. So it's highly symbolic and highly figurative. Um, but let's think about the things that are thrown into the lake of fire here. First of all, you've got the devil, the dragon, and he's not literally a dragon, you know. I do believe in, a, in, a, in an entity called Satan and, and in other, you know, d- uh, evil demonic forces perhaps loosely at his command, I don't know. I don't think it's that organised, really. But here you've got this dragon being thrown into the lake of fire. So I believe here the devil represents all demonic evil, all deception thrown in. So you could say that there's an entity there, there's there's a personality in a sense there. But the other main entities that are thrown into the lake of fire are the beast, or the beast from the earth, and the false prophet, or the beast from the sea. Now, a beast from the earth, uh beg your pardon, I've got that the wrong way around. It's the beast, is, is the beast from the sea. So you've got the beast from the sea rising up out of the sea earlier on in Revelation. And that represents an evil invading empire. It represents, basically, military and political power. And they would have had, in, in those days, when the people John was writing to would have had no difficulty identifying that with Rome the Roman Empire, in different ages it could mean different things. So to me, that that beast coming out of the sea, and remember that the sea represents the chaos of the nations, the evil and restless rebellion amongst the nations, and so this beast arises and conquers. So to me, that represents evil political power, and that is destroyed, thrown into this lake of fire. The false prophet was the beast from the earth, but also known as the false prophet, and that they would have probably identified with the cult of emperor worship, uh, the people that tried to get people to worship the Roman emperor. Um, and they tried, you know, the, the false prophet here tries to get them to worship the beast, the beast from the, the, the sea. So again, this, this to me represents false religion being thrown into the lake of fire. And then what you get is death being thrown in and then you get Hades, the grave, being thrown into the lake of fire and it says they'll be tormented day and night, forever and ever, but how can they be tormented when they are not people, they're abstractions they're concepts, you know, death is a concept, it's not an individual political power is a concept, it's, it's a construct, it's an abstraction, it's an image that's being used to represent something else so they can't literally be tormented day and night forever and ever, so that puts you into the territory of this is um, this is figurative, not literal um, similarly with the grave you know so to my mind the the Lake of fire represents an end and a destruction rather than an ongoing um, punishment. And the things that are are shoved in there are ungodly politics, ungodly false religion, death, the grave, demonic deception. All of these things are consumed and destroyed in the lake of fire. It does then go on to say that if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, they were thrown in. But to my mind, if that happens, the purpose of that is to consume and destroy, not to... Keep keep alive in some way. It's it's the end, and all the Old Testament scriptures from which this imagery is drawn uh, would would I believe say the same thing. So, kind of coming to a close, really. Room for hope. I thought it would be good to end on a good note, and we've already talked about some of these things. So, we, I think we, for me, I think we've answered that what is the nature of Gehenna and I think the nature of Gehenna is to destroy evil is to consume evil completely eradicate it well the next question is how many actual people end up there if you have a traditional view then only a minority of people escape this eternal torment of hell which is it doesn't seem like a very good news gospel to me Um, doesn't God want everyone to be saved you know 1 Timothy 2 4 he wants everyone to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth and we know from reports around the world that many people receive visions of Jesus, even though they've never had the gospel preached to them. Um, even you know, in Muslim countries, even in the, this current time of Ramadan, um, people have visions of Jesus. And who knows how many people, like you were saying about your, your granddad, was it your, sorry, was it your dad, your dad um, who at the very end of their life reach out to God despite their lack of knowledge of the gospel, it doesn't take a 15-point sermon to get somebody ready for salvation. It just takes a momentary change of heart. Yeah. Um, and people go, well, no, no, you know, how can you say that? Well, do you believe that God's grace is sufficient to forgive anyone? And most evangelicals will say, absolutely, absolutely. And you say, well, if somebody's on their deathbed and they repent and they truly believe in Jesus, is God's grace big enough to forgive them? And most evangelicals will say, yes, absolutely. And if you say, what if it's ten seconds before they die? Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. So what about ten seconds after they die? Oh, no, 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 you can't do it. What, has God's grace run out? Has God's grace run out? You know, is it kind of, ha I told you you should have repented right off to hell? It's, you know, or is it that when people suddenly realise, ten seconds after dying, that this is not the end and they think, my goodness, some of the things I've sensed or been told, or I really need to get, is God's grace not big enough to save those people then? The Bible is not clear at all on what happens immediately after death. There are hints and we've talked about the the, um, intermediate state and so on, but who knows how many people even people in other religions, you know, who've never heard the Gospel, um, people sometimes say, yeah, but, you know, they they quote the Scripture in Romans... Oh, I've punched a hole through the chapter. (laughs) Is it Romans? Yeah, was it Romans 14? I can't remember. Uh, I've punched a hole in my note here, so that's a bit silly. Um, But they quote the Scripture about how can they believe if they don't have someone preach to them? And they say, well, if they haven't heard the Gospel, that's it. They're done for. Um, But... You know, okay, they can't, if they have never heard the gospel, they've never heard about Jesus, yes, in a sense, they can't ever fully take part in the restoration of the universe, the restoration of the world, in a really informed way. But does that mean that they can't be saved for eternity? I don't think they're the same thing, you know. Um, Jesus said to the thief, you know, today you'll be with me in paradise. Uh, and he hadn't been baptised, he hadn't heard much at all really. He had put his faith in Jesus, I accept that. Um, but somebody who is from a different religion, who's never heard the Gospel, who has been shaped by their culture, is it not possible that instinctively they would reach out to God uh, and, and be saved? And so, you know, there, there's, you can be saved into eternal life, which i believe god can do for anybody to you know at any uh, almost any time in their life or even possibly after their life mm. but then there's also uh, what peter said to the is, you know save yourself from this wicked age mm. and that's where you need the preaching you need the teaching you need the renewing of the mind and you need to come out of what you're in and live your life for the gospel and that's part of salvation but it's it's not the whole thing so Saying, well, they haven't had a preacher, therefore that's it, I don't believe is, is valid. But who knows, as I say, what happens after death. The Bible, you know, people will say, oh, well, it's appointed for man to die once and then face judgment, and that's in Hebrews. But yes, we die and, and we do face judgment, but it doesn't say there is no chance for repentance. It's not traditionally believed, but it's just not there. If you try and prove it in the Bible... It isn't there, this this idea that there is no chance after death. So I'm not saying I'm 100% certain, but from what we know uh, of people that, that repent as the, on the point of dying and the way God can reach out to people, even with very limited knowledge, who knows what's possible? Maybe, and the, oh, the other one they quote often is this parable, parable of the rich man and Lazarus um, where there's a barrier between... Hades and Abraham and they can't get across and they say, well, there you go after you're dead, that's it, there's no chance um, firstly, a hey, it's a parable we keep having to remind, remind ourselves of that secondly, this guy is not repenting you know, this guy is actually continuing in he's saying, send Lazarus to my brothers so that they won't come here and what he's really saying is if I'd had more information I wouldn't be here now so he's refusing to accept his part in it and really not repenting. But who's, you know, okay, let's for one moment suggest that after death there is Hades, which is where people are stewing, thinking, my goodness, this was true, or maybe they're thinking, I still can't accept this, but why am I here? Who knows, because that's a temporary place until the resurrection and until the final judgment, who's to say that at the end those people come out of Hades and go, Do you know what? I repent. Hmm? It's the naughty step. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) A very severe naughty step. But but they're in torment, not because God's enjoying punishing them, but they're in torment because they are, like in this life, not living according to the image of God that they really are. And so they're twisting themselves out of shape, which is painful. And so I believe the torment actually comes more from... It's almost a self-imposed thing... But there is a discipline of God to say, no, you know, there's only one way, you know, there's only one way. That would sort of make sense in the scripture, but at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Will bow. And heaven and heaven. Yeah, well, that, that could be a universalist mm-hmm. scripture as well. Mm-hmm. Right? And the idea that when you die, if, if, if when you die... You suddenly come more fully into the presence of Jesus. Mm. There was nothing more tormenting mm. than being fully aware of your sins Absolutely. in the presence of God Absolutely. and Absolutely. Not being able to receive forgiveness. And it would f- have mm. an eternal effect. There's nothing yeah. more tormenting than that. Yeah. yeah. So just yeah. coming into a close because we need to get get downstairs fairly shortly. But my suspicion is that God manages to save a very large number of people, um, one way or another. That doesn't mean we give up on evangelism, because we want this whole world to be transformed. We, need, we want people to be transformed now. You know, it, it gives more hope to evangelism, actually. But we want people to come out of the, the kind of hell they're in now, and come out of that and, and be part of that plan for salvation. We want people to store up treasure for themselves in heaven and in the age to come by sowing and reaping. Mm. Um, could that be everyone eventually? You know, could it be that God actually manages to save everyone? I am not 100% there. Um, I think it's certainly possible. Um, I don't think we will ever know for sure. But I think it's certainly possible. And I've listed here in the footnotes, I've listed 14 scriptures that would support... would could be taken to support the idea that God wants everyone to be saved and actually everyone are. Um, And that's why I said that the the Universalist view actually has a lot more scriptures than the ECT view. Conditional immortality probably for me has more weight, but I certainly wouldn't discount Universalism. What we do need to do is encourage people to put their faith in Christ now, uh, anyway. Because none of us can be 100% sure in all this. But what we do know, what I believe fully, is that God will finally rid creation of all evil. And populate it with a huge, huge multitude of people united to God and to one another in glory. So if you... Oh, one last, last, last thing... So, my view, if you like, is an inclusive conditional immortality with the potential for post mortem repentance. I'm on loitering, yeah. (laughs) With the potential for repentance after death, potentially. What causes me to hesitate on universalism is the Trinitarian concept where God doesn't force anything on anyone, but because As the trinity, he's embraced humanity, the whole of humanity, which sounds very universalist. Um, But what most of the Trinitarian scholars and writers believe, like Baxter Kruger and um, Paul Young, I think, um, and Francois de Toy, what, what they would say is that God doesn't control and he doesn't force, so unless there's an actual possibility that somebody could finally reject, then what you haven't got is real relationship, you haven't really got free will and this is a mystery the relationship between god's sovereignty and god's free will that i think we're covering next time actually so i would say that trinitarian wise there has to at least be the possibility that some people could choose to be destroyed rather than enter into this relationship but i wouldn't put it past god to somehow make it so difficult for people to to say no that they they went for it yeah. It completely screws your theology. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The love of God revealed to somebody is a powerful, powerful thing. Um, so I'll leave it there. Yeah, that, that's right, Maria. But I could have mentioned about the uh, Jesus talking about um, about the place reserved for the devil and his angels. That's quite right. I, I sort of it was in my mind earlier, but I didn't mention it. But yeah, so so hell arguably is for the destruction of demonic forces not for people and that wasn't isn't god's intention to send people there so that's absolutely right amen